Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Yakub, for your incredibly informative uh, presentation, especially for those of us uh, like me who are not well versed in Hanafi law uh, as you um, have expounded it. So on that note, I will uh, open the floor and invite questions from the participants. As I mentioned before at the beginning of the discussion, and as you have become uh, accustomed to now, we do this by using the raise hand function uh, that Microsoft team, Teams uh, uh, allow us to use and facilitate. When I see that raised hand, I will invite um, those people to unmute themselves and ask their question. Um, if not, of course, if you don't have that function or you don't have a mic, uh, you can feel free to also ask your question via the chat feature um, that we have on Teams. So if I can invite questions now or invite you to raise your hands, you can do it now. If not, as I always abuse my prerogative as the chair, I get in there and ask um, the first questions anyway. So since I don't see hands going up immediately, I will do that myself and uh, ask and really um, present to you a, a a question which kind of, I don't want to say challenges, but to ask about the overarching um, basis of, 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 your, of your approach that you did mention rightly at the beginning that um, a lot of the uh, gender positioning, uh, which is spoken about in Islamic law and uh, uh, Islamic discussions is on the back of um, colonialization and that context. Is it not fair to say then that the, the the fact that we have so much salience of uh, looking at Islam and Islamic law through the gender lens that Islamic scholarship has still not freed itself from um, that kind of colonial pressure that we still feel um, pressured into looking at Islamic law through this lens, um, you know, as a very salient feature? Uh, or maybe is that unfair to say? And is it the real the fact that Islamic law is um, unquestionably male dominated? Um, is that what plays the role in us taking such an approach, uh, a gender um, positioned approach? I might say. Yeah, thank you for that question. I I really appreciate that, and I think that you know you're asking a very uh, important kind of you know very sort of broad question about you know the very sort of method right that a lot of the scholarship has been. Um, has been focused on, and I would say a couple of things. I mean, I think, uh, you know, at one level, I would agree with you that, um, you know, that that inevitably, at some level, the insistence on looking at the question of gender or analyzing Islamic law through gender as a category uh, certainly has its tie to colonial discourse. This sort of insistence uh, that we have seen from the 19th century onwards in colonial discourse that Islamic law, that Islam is is sort of um, uniquely oppressive towards women and that the vehicle through which that is exercised is Islamic law. Those are the kinds of you know, connections that have been drawn in colonial discourse. Uh, and the response to that has been either sort of defensively to say that, no, this is not true. And that defensiveness can either be about saying, okay, what looks like patriarchy to you is, or, you know, or what looks like a disadvantage to you is actually a complementary um, uh, you know, understanding of the of, of gender roles, or it might be to say, um, you know, it's not real Islam that believes this, so we're willing to reform Islamic law, but real Islam doesn't do this. Or it could be a response that says, um, no, in fact, yes, you know, we disagree with the kind of power dynamics that has raised this question, and we certainly don't want, and I think this has been the position of a lot of um, 
um, Muslim women scholars writing on Islam more broadly and not just Islamic law has been to kind of distance themselves from the political, the sort of colonial um, uh, project, right, and the ways in which it uses gender uh, to target Muslim communities around the world, but to say that, you know, what is being noted is something that is certainly true. So similar to what you're saying, you know, could we say that because there is clearly a privileging of, um, of, of men as legal subjects in Islamic law, we can then say that, okay, the reason why the question comes up is colonial in its history and continues to be, uh, but that doesn't mean that the question itself uh, or the the issues that are being raised themselves are not a problem that we need to think about and discuss. And I think this is, you know, always the challenge of being a people who are subordinated, right, is that you don't get to set the terms of the debates that you're having. And I'm not sure that there's really any possibility of arguing that any one group is unaffected by that discourse. I think it's much easier to see um, Muslim women who stand up and say, okay, look, the law disadvantages me to then turn around and say, well, you only feel that way because you've internalized colonial discourse. I think that's much easier to see. It's harder to see, but I think it is, it is you know, very accurate um, that those who then insist that either that, you know, there's a complementarity of gender or that, yes, Islam insists on patriarchy are also individuals who have internalized the colonial discourse, right? Even defense is an internalization of the discourse. So for me, I think my, and that's kind of why to me this question of is gender the main um, kind of category through which social relations are organized in Islamic law is a question that I think uh, is, you know, not just an, an a kind of um, important theoretical question, but I think it's also an important question to pose to challenge that kind of colonial discourse. And that's sort of what I'm hoping that the, you know, that the book will do is to get us to question the ways in which both the gender binary as well as the centrality of gender as uh, as the kind of category through which social order, uh, social, uh, social relations are organized is actually a colonial, is the product of colonial modernity. Uh, and so when we turn back to Islamic law and think that the exact same thing is happening there, we have to sort of step back and question our own assumptions. And part of what I'm trying to show is that it's a much more complicated world than men have, have a position of dominance in Islamic law, right? You, it, sometimes it can be certain kinds of men, sometimes it can be certain kinds of men and women, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot more complicated than a simple binary. And I hope that that kind of gives us some tools to be able to uh, step beyond this, uh, you know, this conversation that is a colonial heritage, which is really just us saying, clearly women are disadvantaged in Islamic law. Now, what do we do with that? Do we defend it? Do we critique it? What do we do? But to actually step back and say, okay, maybe that assumption is not correct. Maybe there are disadvantages of particular legal persons in Islamic law, but it's not as simple as women. And I hope that that kind of opens up some space to move beyond the constraints of the colonial discourse. Thank you so much um, for that answer. You you mentioned um, uh, that the book, which is which is about due to be published, is that do you could just repeat that? Is that to be published soon or? Well, sadly, in you know, in academic publishing life, not due to be published, due to be sent for review. <laughs> so it's still a while, but we we thoroughly look forward to that output soon. Um, we have a question here asked by text for one of our 
student stroke colleague, Dr. Munzela Raza, is asking, uh, thank you for the presentation, Dr. Yakub. What change, if any, has there been in the status of free Muslim women after the 12th century in Hanafi law? Firstly, also, would you say this pattern of legal personhood is reflected across other schools of fiqh? Yeah, thank you for both of those questions. So the the this question of um, you know what happens post the 12th century, uh, that's something that I'm hoping to kind of look at once the you know this book is done, uh, you know, and, and look at that further. I do know from you know a couple of um, other studies that have looked at you know what is called a post classical period. Um, that there are, and specifically looking at, you know, this issue of covering, because one of the kind of main distinctions, uh, at least in Hanafi fiqh, between free women and enslaved women is marked through their, um, through their sort of clothing and restrictions on uh, covering that is placed on enslaved women. And there seems to be some shift in, in those arguments uh, that are made by jurists uh, in the later period, the Hanafi jurists in the later period, where they seem to become increasingly uncomfortable with enslaved women not being, uh, you know, as covered as free women. So, you know, there's some ways in which perhaps clothing as a marker of difference, uh, you know, takes, um, becomes less resonant. Uh, but there's still other ways in which the status of a free woman is always maintained over an enslaved woman that I think continues in uh, in the post-classical period as well. So what I would what I would sort of wager as a guess would be that you know in the post-classical period you might see that the particularities change, but I think the need to maintain a difference between you know, different relations in the social hierarchy, I think uh, certainly, uh, definitely, you know, continues to remain. And I think, um, if I'm remembering correctly, Madeleine Zilfi has a book on women in the Ottoman period where she's looking at, um, uh, you know, some of these differences, uh, um, you know, between free women and enslaved women in the Ottoman period. And you can see some of them are very similar to what I'm seeing in the earlier uh, Hanafi uh, legal discourse. Some of it is certainly different, but the fact that difference has to be maintained in ways that are publicly visible and visual, uh, I think certainly continues. Um, the other question was on this, uh, you know, which I get, uh, I've gotten asked this question several times now about, okay, so, you know, how does this um, relate to other legal schools? And I would say two things about that. I think at one level, I would, uh, I would think, and I don't delve too much into other legal schools, um, but, you know, to the extent that I have looked at at least the case studies that I'm looking at, you know, what the Shafis might be saying, and the Shafis always show up in the Hanafi legal text, right? The, the, the Hanafis and Shafis are always like kind of going back and forth with each other. Uh, so there's always that kind of comparative even happening in the text that I'm looking at. Um, but they're, you know, they they differ on the particularities. So the Shafis, for example, would not allow a free adult woman to contract her own marriage unless she is now a, a you know, a thayyib, somebody who is no longer a virgin. The Hanafis differ on that. Um, you know, the Shafis and the Malikis might say that only the father and paternal grandfather have the right of compulsion, uh, and the Hanafis would give a slightly, you know, more expansive right. So, you know, so there there are ways in which uh, on these particular issues they differ in their conclusions, and I think a lot of that, you know, has 
to do with the methodologies that they're using as well as their legal school's precedents. Uh, but what I would argue, I think, um, is that the the fact that no single identity is predictable in uh, in in shaping the legal status of an individual is something that I think would be true across the different legal schools. And I hope that you know once the book is out, um, scholars of you know other legal schools would be inspired to kind of bring this theoretical framework to their particular legal tradition and see, you know, what it looks like, what are the identities that are at play, how do they kind of intersect with one another, and what are the conclusions that are drawn by the jurists across different time periods, and how that then affects the kind of uh, rights that a person can claim or the obligations that they have to, that they have to fulfill. But I think the argument that gender as a singular category determining the legal status of an individual across every aspect of the law that my challenge to that assumption i think would be true for other legal schools as well uh, thank you i saw a hand up uh, imran sumar but i don't know if he um it's lowered now whether he meant to lower it or not uh, if you want to ask a question please unmute yourself imran and go ahead otherwise well, we'll move on to another question uh, sure, if, if I may. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. So, I think Dr. Yaakov and everyone else. Um, so, my, my question may be somewhat sophomoric in this regard because I have absolutely no expertise or, or knowledge about Hanafi school. And thank you for your very interesting presentation. So, my question is sort of of two threads or two parts. Um, are, are you saying then through the mediation of the law in Hanafi fiqh, there is a kind of almost gradation of womanhood or personhood ontologically that seems to be derived by the ulama so you know starting with whether you're you know from a prepubescent child to a woman who's no longer a virgin do you are you suggesting then that you know the degree to which a woman is realized as a category is somehow confirmed uh in this fifth if if i understood you correctly and the second um question has to do with this notion of ontological personhood or womanhood um because i imagine the way you're presenting your discourse and your forthcoming book will uh you know probably butt heads almost with uh say traditionalists or quote-unquote neo-traditionalists uh wherein they are you know heavily dependent on the discourse of complementarity of the genders and a kind of I mean, if you look at even books like by in, in the Sufi tradition, you know, scholars of Sufism, Dr. Murata, or uh, even Anna Marie Schimmel's very interesting work, My My Soul is a Woman. You know, they, they talk about the kind of realization of femininity and womanhood that is sort of through but outside of the law at the same time that transcends the law into the Tariqa and then eventually the Haqqaiq. And I wonder as to if your discourse intersects with those ways of looking at what it might be, what it might mean to be a woman, a fully realized woman, especially. Yeah, and thank you so much for those two really, really great questions. I think um, maybe I'll start with your second question and then come back to the first one, because um, I think the second question really gets at the crux of this sort of issue of like, what is the kind of ontological status right of gender because as you're rightly pointing out in a lot of the scholarship and particularly uh, that uh, the scholarship and uh, or some of the earlier scholarship uh, in um, talking about gender and Sufism have certainly made this kind of argument that 
gender has a kind of ontological status and, you know, it's a binary and there's a particular relation in the binary and then it takes on a kind of metaphysical significance. Uh, and, and I seem to be one, uh, you know, to want to argue that, um, you know, that it's far more complicated than a binary. And I think, you know, what I would say to that is that I think what, what interests me as I come to the legal discourse is the fact that I see, and, and again, so, you know, I'm talking about the early period and in the early period for the Hanafi legal school, um, the two sort of jurists that have the most expansive texts are Muhammad al-Sarqsi from the 11th century and Ala al-Din al-Qasani from the uh, um, also kind of like, uh, you know, 12th century, about a century or so after Sarasi, um, they have the most expansive text where they kind of get into their own justifications of these legal rulings. But, you know, what I see, both of them articulate, Marganani also to a certain extent, um, is that they do have a conception of gender as sort of some as a kind of ontological condition, right? That there is something to that essence. So I certainly don't want to argue like we are now, at least in the US, in this kind of space now where we seem to want to argue that gender and sex are both such a social construction, right? That there is um, just an endless permutations of whatever you might as an individual want to articulate, right? Of your uh, gender and sexual identity, right? I, I don't want to make it come across as though that is what Sarahsi and Kasani are also saying. But what I am intrigued by is the fact that they can simultaneously make statements about this ontological nature of gender, right? That women are like this and men are like that. And the relation between them is this and that. And yet when you see particular legal rulings, when you come at this not from the kind of more... Uh, general statements that they're making, but looking at particular case studies and looking at them comparatively, you can see that they were able to simultaneously hold on to an ontological notion of gender as a binary, and yet be able to recognize that in, in sort of social existence, humans are far more complex than just being women and just being men. Right. And that is what is, I think, of particular interest to me is how do we kind of, you know, come to a place where we can recognize that something, uh, you know, have at some level a discourse that recognizes a kind of ontological nature to gender without necessarily then insisting that it must look only as that binary in the social worlds that we live in. And that's where I think, you know, we have very much internalized a kind of colonial discourse. And there's a you know, number of other scholars who are in the field of history of sexuality who've made this argument, uh, showing the ways in which the idea of the gender binary, the idea that uh, not, not just that ontologically humans exist as male and female, but that that kind of biological um, anatomical sex must be the, the, the only and the primary mode through which social relations are organized is a colonial construction. So um, uh, there's an African feminist scholar, um, Oyewonke Oyerumi, uh, who has a book um, called, oh, I'm gonna forget the exact name, uh, but she's looking at, you know, Yoruba society, pre-colonial Yoruba society, and, and sort of noting similar things, that you had a notion of anatomical sex, that you know that you have people who are male and you have people who are female, but that didn't mean that all people who are anatomically sexed female somehow shared this thing called womanhood, uh, and therefore had to kind of 
look the same in social orders and similarly with men, but that you had a very complex kind of a landscape. So I think that's kind of what I would argue that, you know, what I'm seeing in Hanafi law is that certainly there are ideas, uh, you know, of gender as something that is ontological, gender that is a binary, but that did not then stop the jurors from also recognizing that, you know, two women with very different kinds of uh, places in the social order uh, are are not the same, and therefore they don't take the same legal rulings. They don't have the same kind of uh, obligations. They cannot claim the same kind of rights. And that did not mean that you then had to step away from your ontological claims, right? It meant that you can recognize that there is a certain trueness to people's uh, anatomical sex, but that doesn't mean that that is the only thing that you take into consideration in establishing your social order and the relations between them. May, may I add something, or do you need to move on? No, go ahead, go ahead, Imran, go ahead. So my, my, my question would then be, and thank you so much uh, for your response. I, I remember studying, for example, uh, I don't know if it was the Commerce, an anthropological study, for example, of South African uh, itinerant workers, men who were married and, you know, in the, at the turn of the Industrial Revolution, and they were, so you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, working out in diamond mines, for example, and they would have relations with younger men, unmarried men who were classified female, say, by our standards. Uh, as Satyam just brings in, because you mentioned the Yoruba, and so, you know, this happened in South Africa, but these men were still gendered male, whether passive or active participants uh, in sexual activity, and then when these younger men had enough money to marry women, they would then be classed fully male. And you see the same thing in sort of East Africa with queen mothers being more male or more masculine than an ordinary male. And I, I wonder then, you see, in those societies, to the extent I've read about them, there didn't seem to be a conflict uh, between one's anatomy and one's psyche, so to speak. And I wonder if then it's a, in your view, if it's a product of colonialism that uh, people have these conflicts between how they relate to each other anatomically, as well as in terms of gender perception, or whether it's now a function of this kind of no-holds-barred late modern or even post-modern situation within which we find ourselves that's granting us the impetus to go back to the legal traditions to try and make sense of how we're feeling now, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Has there always been a conflict, or is your work now a product of the fact that there does seem to be a conflict between, say, psyche and anatomy, as an example, or spirit and form? Um if you don't mind my pressing you. Yeah, uh, no, I, I, I definitely appreciate what you're saying. And I think, you know, some of what you're noting about the kind of um, discourse around gender identity, uh, you know, that we're now sort of seeing, I think is, you know, uh, again, I'll go back to Oyewumi, who uh, I have found really helpful in thinking um, uh, about the colonial construction of, of gender. And the argument that she makes that, you know, part of what happens in the colonial uh, sort of discourse is that, you know, your biology uh, dictates everything. And so there's a way in which in some of these pre-colonial societies, uh, the, you know, some of the ones that you mentioned, uh, you know, there are some studies uh, in the, the, the Muslim context also, uh, you know, that are looking at pre-colonial uh, Ottoman society, Qajar Iran, uh, you know, that are also noting similar kinds of things where individuals could be anatomically sexed 
female, for example, but take on roles that were considered to be very masculine without necessarily then being seen as men, right? That was also happening. I think there's, you know, it's important for us to recognize that the fact that there have that there have always been people who, uh, you know, do not see themselves as either male or female. And there are different reasons, right, why that might be. Sometimes it's anatomical, sometimes it is not. But I think the kind of pervasiveness that we're, that, you know, of that kind of discourse that we're seeing now, I think does have a lot to do with a particular kind of, uh, you know, late capitalist moment that we're in tied in with neoliberalism. I mean, I think there's, you know, a lot happening there that I can't necessarily unpack now. But I do think that, you know, that Oyewumi, and I find that, you know, to be true in the kind of legal discourse that I'm looking at as well, that that when biology does not acquire the status where it is the only defining logic that can then determine how it is that people act in the world, you don't have a need to reject your anatomical uh, sex identity in order to take on roles, right, that would not be seen as what somebody who's anatomically sex male or female would do. But once you live in a world where the argument is that you must behave like this because you are anatomically sexed female, and that is, you know, biologically what you are naturally inclined to do, right, and you cannot do anything else, then the only way that you can push against the constraints on your social roles is by challenging the very notion of biology, right? And Oyewumi's argument is that even when people insist that biology is a social construction as a way of freeing themselves from uh, from that constraint, they've still kind of bought into the idea that biology somehow should dictate how it is that we live in the world, right? Because otherwise you can say, yeah, okay, I might be anatomically sexed male or female. That doesn't mean that I can, you know, not have this kind of position, right? That, uh, that normally would be seen as masculine. And I think you know, this is very true for a lot of places around the world. I mean, speaking as a South Asian, for example, you know, sometimes I read these early Hanafi uh, discussions around marriage and familial relations, and it sounds very similar to me to what happens in a lot of South Asian families, right? The mother-in-law and the daughter-in-law are both women. That does not mean that they have the same status in the family, right? Uh, so one could say that the kind of, you know, in an ideal way. I'm not saying that this is what always happens in the family. But, you know, in a kind of ideal understanding of the position that a mother-in-law takes, right, is kind of exits her from womanhood, so to speak, in the sense that she has now, you know, gotten to that point in the family hierarchy, right, where she has the status above and over other women and also younger men, right, in uh, in the family. So I think, you know, you can see the ways in which that continues to play out in the contemporary context as well, even now. But I think it is important for us to, you know, uh, to, for or for me, I think what's important is how can we uh, be in conversation with our sort of heritage or our intellectual heritage as Muslims, not just in a way that I feel neo-traditionalists have a tendency to do, which is defensive, which is to say, well, if it says that in the book, in terms of formalistic legal rulings, then I hold on to that as my history. But to actually see this intellectual history or this intellectual heritage as something that, you know, really shapes our way of thinking and can then speak back to the world that we live in, how do we then kind of use this legal discourse to say, look, we can hold on to a certain idea of gender as ontological, we can hold on to an idea of biological sex, but still be able to recognize that 
you know, gender roles are far more complicated than men should behave like this and women should behave like that. Uh, thank you, both Imran and Dr. Yaqub, for a fascinating um, back and forth there. Um, if Dr. Yaqub is okay with taking one more question, then we can uh, I invite um, uh, our student Adam, who has his hand raised, to unmute his mic and go ahead and ask the question. Assalamualaikum. Uh, thank you for your presentation. Very interesting. Um, sort of just on the back of um, your comments and up to the last question. Um, of course, there was there's a you spoke about um, how relations were sort of uh, how these relations between people, how personhood was sort of relational. Um, and based on the comments you just made about, um, well, in a way, those not fitting into sort of male or female categories. Um, do you have any examples of how um, how they were sort of treated within Hanafi fiqh? I mean, obviously, um, within fiqh literature, there are examples of, um, well, there's evidence that people understood gender a bit more, with a bit more nuance in the sense that there were, I think it was Mahradad Ali Poor has an article where he talks about um, there being sort of five um, different um, ambiguous gender categories that were understood as well. So do you have any examples of how that was actually dealt with within FICA itself? Sorry, just as a clarification. So are, are you wanting um, specific examples where gender ambiguous people, how they were treated in, in FIP discourse? Uh, yes, please, if you could. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you so much for that uh, question. Um, the, yeah, so it, um, on, uh, this side of the Atlantic, uh, I'm more familiar with uh, Indira Guessing's work, um, but I'd love if you wouldn't mind in the chat, just kind of the name of the individual that you mentioned, because I'd love to look up their article as well. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, are, are now kind of raising this whole uh, issue that, you know, even the gender binary in Islamic law, right, is uh, is far more complicated that, you know, uh, Hanafi jurists in particular, but I think uh, so Indira Guessing is looking uh, at beyond uh, just the Hanafi legal school, um, where, you know, recognize that, uh, you know, human bodies are far more complicated than, ever, you know, so most people will be anatomically sexed male or female, but that doesn't mean that there will always be people where there is kind of ambiguity and they made different categories between those who, um, you know, in, in Hanafi discourse who are referred to as khuntha, um, right, but khuntha that you can then gender one way or the other. Uh, and then there's the Khunsa Mushkil, who is somebody that, you know, simply cannot be gendered one way or the other. And there are really interesting ways in which, at least in the early Hanafi discourse, um, or in the early Hanafi legal text, they deal with this. So, you know, one example would be, well, how do people line up for prayer, right? And Sarahsi, for example, would say that, you know, if you are a Khunsa who is gendered female, so if you are a Khunsa female, you would line up with the women. If you're khunsa male, you would line up with the men. But the khunsa mushkil would line up in between men and women. So quite spatially, right, their liminality is kind of marked out at that particular moment. A similar kind of a thing uh, to, you know, there are some discussions on um, burial, uh, and, and not so much burial, but like the funeral prayer, right? Uh, and the, so if you have three individuals for whom the funeral prayer is being performed. One is a male, one's a female, and one is a khunsa mushkil. What do you do? Uh, and they say, and, you know, Sarasi says that, well, the male is the one that is closest to the qibla because, you know, there is that kind of privileging of, of maleness. Uh, and then there is, uh, you know, the woman, and then the khunsa mushkil is in between them, 
right? So there's a way in which conceptually they see the Khunsa Mushkil as being in a liminal, in this kind of spectrum where male and female are kind of two ends of the spectrum and then you have people who are kind of like in a liminal status in between. And to the extent that it is possible, uh, depending on the legal ruling, to place them in some kind of liminal space between male and female to do that. Um, you know, in inheritance laws, it becomes a lot more complicated. Uh, I was very, when I was studying this, I was very challenged by my, you know, trying to remember fractional fractions and math from um, from elementary school, where it's like, they're like, okay, so, you know, if you've got the, you know, the, the half uh, that is given to the woman, or, to, you know, depending on the relation, right, if, if it's, uh, if that woman would get the half, then you kind of see the khunsa mushkil as, you know, you take from remembering correctly, don't quote me on this. I think it's like you take the the share if he was a male and the share if he was a female or they were male or they were female and then you half that and give them that, right? So there's all kinds of really interesting ways in which um, the, you know, the Hanafi jurors tried to resolve this ambiguity. Uh, the most interesting one to me is this question of, you know, how do you even determine whether this whether a person is khunsa mushkil, right? What are the kinds of anatomical um aspects of the body that you take into consideration deciding, okay, um, it might not be very clear, but I think we can fit you into male or we can fit you into female or no, not at all. This is right. Uh, this is not going to, going to work. And I think Indira Gessink's uh, work, uh, she's trying to make the argument that a lot of the discourse around intersexuality uh, in um, Muslim majority countries today is much more influenced by um, Western medical discourses uh, that, you know, insist on a gender binary and cannot really accommodate that kind of spectrum of ambiguity that fiqh, uh, pre-modern fiqh did, uh, and trying to bring that conversation, right, uh, to, uh, you know, and lay that out for us and say, look, you know, pre-modern Islamic law actually recognized that, yes, it is preferable for individuals to be gendered one way or the other, but we recognize that there will be some individuals who we will never be able to do that with, you know, and 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 here the fine. Here are ways in which we can try to figure out, um, you know, some kind of different legal ruling for them, uh, depending on the particular context, and that's okay, right? And again, that doesn't mean that you have to let go of the idea that there is something real and true and essential to, you know, to gender in terms of anatomical sex, but you can yet still recognize that Allah has created people, right? I mean, Allah has created people who are clearly male, clearly female, and then really ambiguous, right? Uh, and that you can hold all of those things uh, to be true at the same time. Uh, fascinating. Thank you. Uh, if you don't mind, Dr. Yaku, on the back of that, if I can ask one very brief, um, well, the question is brief anyway, I don't know if the answer um, it might be a bit complex, but on the back of that, uh, you, just on something that you mentioned, that the khuntha, or the, I think hermaphrodite is what they, is termed in, in, in English, but um, in Hanafi law used to be, in, in particularly the case you gave uh, with inheritance, that um, I, think it was, I think what you mentioned was like the average between the male share and the female share, and whether they would get that. But I mean, as you mentioned, it is not the anatomy that makes the person, but rather the, the social ramifications of that gender, if you like. And of course, the social ramifications of civil law and uh, inheritance being one of those aspects was, of course, the uh, male individual's ability to uh, earn uh, and be a breadwinner uh, and, of course, the female being 
less able to do that in the 7th century. And of course, the inheritance laws were based, of course, by text, but based on those social realities. So the, the recognition of those social realities come into play when you find someone who, I mean, of course, what are they able to, uh, I mean, of course, inheritance is just one example that you touched on, but do those come into play when, when looking at um, how to categorize, if you like, people who are, don't fall into one category or the other? Yeah, that's a really great question as a as a follow up. I think th for that, I think we would have to start looking at fatawa uh, or in court cases rather than the kind of you know the more kind of academic um, discursive uh, tradition um, because you know there's a kind of constraint to what it is that you know the the fuqaha in terms of looking at. Um, the substantive legal text would be talking about. So, you know, in, in the text that I'm looking at, there's much greater concern with working out the categories rather than ensuring that a particular kind of, um, or, 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 you know, with, a, with attention to their particular dependencies and making sure that those are maintained, right? So, um, so I don't see, I haven't seen much discussion on who is supposed to be financially responsible for the khunsa mushkil, right? If they are khunsa female, then okay, they take on every and all legal rulings, right? That would pertain to uh, not just being a female, but what kind of a female are you, right? Are you child or adult? Are you free or enslaved? Are you um, married, unmarried, right? I mean, all of those kinds of things. But when you are khunsa mushkil, who is financially responsible for you, I think is something that I have not really seen uh, come up in uh, in these legal discourses. And I think, you know, Marion Katz is now some of her recent work that she's working on uh, is also trying to, you know, um, step away from the kind of substantive legal discussions and look at the ways in which, yes, there is a kind of assumption uh, in the fiqh discourse that, you know, um, depending on what kind of a woman you are, you would, you know, be provided for by particular kinds of male relations. Um, but that didn't mean that that's what was happening on the ground, that women were often uh, earning an income, uh, often through weaving and spinning, something that they could do in their homes and, you know, not have to kind of go out um, in, into the market, which would be something that would be expected more of um, enslaved women, you know, urban working class and poor women rather than uh, women of uh, elite background or even of a kind of a middle class background. So, you know, so so I think, you know, there there's all kinds of complications even. I, I don't think that we can easily read the jurists as only assuming that women will be legally or financially dependent on men. I think those arguments come up when they're trying to um, justify particular kinds of legal rulings. So, you know, this one that I mentioned in the talk about the mother being uh, having the child's best interest in mind, but not being of sound judgment, right? Um, we might be sort of tempted to say, oh, okay, so what, you know, what the jurists are saying here is that women are intellectually deficient, right? And therefore, the mother cannot take that kind of position. I would think that that, I, what I would argue is that that is a gendered argument that is coming in to justify a particular constraint that already has precedence in the legal school and not a statement about the intellectual capacities of women as a kind of category of people. Because in other aspects of the law, they would never argue that, you know, a free woman should not have right over her property because she's not a person of sound judgment, right? I mean, they certainly make those arguments about the Safi. They would make that argument about, you know, a, a child. 
but they would not make that argument about women as a category. So I think it were also important for us to recognize when it is a gendered arguments come in to justify a legal ruling rather than to be making an ontological statement about women as a kind of category um, as a whole. But to you know go to your specific kind of question about the the Khunsa and the Khunsa Mushkil, I have not seen uh, discussions that are you know concerned about you know who are they dependent on, who's providing for them, and things of that nature, uh, and that being the determining factor uh, in what legal rulings they take on. I think that's something that we'll probably see more in the fatawa literature and like court cases. Thank you, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Yakub. At this point, as well as thanking yourself for joining us uh, first thing in the morning for you and, and at the end of our working day here in the UK. I have to also extend uh, my thanks to um, uh, Nadia Abdul Hussein, who was instrumental in uh, inviting you and getting you over for this seminar, which uh, so our thanks goes to her as well for our privilege of having uh, hosted you. Uh, so thank you very much. And on that note, I'm going to bring the seminar, very fruitful and very vibrant seminar to a close.